This is Adam Pwadik from the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. The episode you're about to hear was originally a video interview. We are doing a series of webinars with the Real Estate Forums in their Thought Leadership Series. We've had a number of high-profile guests on so far with many more to come. If you prefer to see the live video, you can watch it at realestateforums.com. Whether you watch it or listen to it, the content is great. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Good afternoon. I'm George Prisbelowski, and welcome to the 13th of our series of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're especially pleased today to present an insightful conversation with another of our industry's respected presidents. John Duda is the head of Colliers International's real estate management services across Canada with a portfolio of over 65 million square feet and a net asset value of $17 billion. Working with leading real estate organizations for over 20 years in the areas of corporate real estate management, he has held a variety of progressive roles throughout his career, developing a strong reputation for consistently achieving strategic and organic ongoing business growth. This growth has been fueled by his passion for innovation and developing talent through a culture of collaboration. John's various roles in his career have honed his ability to manage large organizational changes, including assessing real estate service models, organizational structure, and service enhancement. The theme of this interview today is appropriately the potential impacts of COVID-19 on Canadian real estate. How can you prepare for current and future challenges? John will be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawadik, a first national financial, Canada's largest non-bank lender. Over the past three years, they have built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 100 interviews. Today marks the second time for everyone to actually see Aaron and Adam and admire Adam's particular uh, non mustache while looking at Aaron's goatee, but they'll be here live in person as they appear on a webinar platform. A few comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending upon the depth of the discussion, there will definitely be an opportunity for John to also respond to a few questions from viewers. You can type one in at any time during the webinar. Click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen and hit the submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. At the bottom of your screen, you'll also find multiple application widgets. Registration for today's session has been very strong, and so please, if you're submitting questions, get them in sooner rather than later. Today's presentation will be taped and will be available on demand. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to any other colleagues who are not able to watch today's session. And with that, Aaron and Adam, the floor is now yours. Thanks, George. Appreciate it. And I apologize for this offensive thing on my face. Well, let's get into it. John, you know, we had a podcast scheduled a couple of weeks ago and we canceled it because we were going to do this. So Adam and I, and we've decided to kind of just follow our typical line of questioning. And so before we get into sort of the really the theme of the podcast, we like to get a, an understanding or you know, some familiarity with our guests. So let's just start with what your trajectory in your career was. What was your background and how did you end up where you are today? 
Well, thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I started in engineering. I was an industrial engineer coming out of school and worked with an electrical manufacturer and quickly got into sales and marketing, and which I really did like. And, you know, it taught me a couple things. One, that early on in my career, I was able to add some value, even though I was at a very junior position, and it immediately had an impact and, you know, led to a promotion and led to attention really by management. And it really struck me. I was fortunate to be working with a very strong leader, even though it wasn't a huge business, but a very principled man, knew how to run a business and was highly respected. And that had an impact on me and certainly shaped the way I felt I would want to be as a leader as well. I ended up in real estate, not by design. It was more just an opportunity came up when I came out of grad school and I had done my MBA and I was fascinated. I was really fascinated with how dynamic and big, I would say, the real estate industry was. And even though I knew it was there, I never really took a close look at it. And after that first taste, I stuck with it for the rest of my career. So maybe let's let's a good segue. You are you know now the president of one of the largest commercial asset management companies. Maybe just talk about how you ended up in your current role. The purpose here is to talk about COVID and what's going to transpire in the future. But let's spend a couple of minutes just talking about the past and maybe just kind of what you did for your team leading up into maybe February 2020. Well, I'd say the, the thing I focused on most in my real estate career was really on building a strong platform. It was the first thing I did in the second in my first job in real estate. It was really building a platform for the business. And I really enjoyed it for the simple reason is that it had a strong impact on the ability for everyone to do their job. And that led to another opportunity for me. And I got into business development and it just worked. It just worked for me. I really enjoy talking to clients. I find that's where most of my ideas come from. It helped me to manage the business better, to direct the business better. And from that, I had taken on a role with Collier's about 10 years ago. And I still recall the initial conversation with David Bowden, who was CEO at the time. And I'd asked him if he was actually interested in the business and if he was going to invest in the business because I had my own ideas. And his answer was, it was excellent. He said, look, this is a core business for us and it's part of our future. And here's how we're investing in it today. And what was important for me was to be able to have an influence. If I feel like I'm going into something and I can't influence what's going on, I don't feel like I'm making a contribution. And David made it really clear that there was a landscape here that I could shape. And he held true to that word throughout my duration here. And because of that, I was able to actually have an influence. We have built a platform that I think is very strong. Our business has doubled in the past four or five years. And I think that's from listening to clients. And that's how I think I was able to rise within Collier's was to really listen to the clients and to also engage a team. Without a strong team, you're not going to get much of anywhere fast. But George led in here, he talked about the size of your portfolio, being 65 million square feet. Can you give us a quick breakdown of you know, the asset classes you oversee in that? And maybe that will lead into what happens when you're controlling a portfolio that size rolling into March of this year. So uh, very roughly, our portfolio is about one half is, is office, about 20% is retail, and uh, the balance is mostly industrial. There is some multifamily in there, but very little and some other product that you know could be land and other various types of real estate. 
So let's jump into, you know, March 2020. I imagine that your stress levels have gone up a little bit with this many tenants and properties and landlords to keep in consideration. There's a lot of moving parts. And related to that, you know, we haven't mentioned it yet, but to release two we're going to discuss today, the rent collection release status and a tenant send report. And Aaron and I were lucky enough to get copies of those. We read them, and so we will get into them in, in detail. But rent relief would be a good starting point because that was the kind of the main focal point of crises for real estate heading into March, where very quickly people were looking for rent relief by the end of March. So can you describe heading into it, what you're seeing, and then maybe what you found out now there were two more months in your rent relief report? Yes. So initially, what we were looking at is the dynamic between the tenant and landlord and what the impact was in terms of the lockdown. And what became quite clear was that the length of time of the lockdown had a very direct impact on who could pay rent and not. And even though that may sound obvious, it was a very big factor. And it was less so to do with other parts of the business, like the size of it or the type. It really had to do with whether or not that business was completely shut down. And throughout this process, as COVID hit, we've been in constant contact with our China operations, which are quite large. And clearly, they got hit with this sooner than we did. And they're also recovering sooner than we have. So We've been quite fortunate because we've been picking up a lot of information and the trends they're seeing, and we're seeing very, very similar trends here. So the two things that it helped us to do was prepare for the pandemic. We had pandemic plans in place in all of our buildings. There's over 850 of them. We had them in place and tailored to COVID before COVID actually hit here. And so when it did, we were very, very prepared. And the rollout for us was was virtually seamless. We are seeing that retail tenants, and again, this won't be a surprise to anyone, the retail tenants are suffering more. And the simple, the very simple reason is the retail tenants are dealing directly with the consumer. And obviously with the distancing, that's a very difficult thing to do. So we're also seeing that May took a little bit of a dip. And interestingly, as now the economies are starting to turn back on, We're now seeing that the June rents, and we're tracking rents day by day as they come in, and we're comparing it to previous months back into January. We're seeing that June right now is on par with May, which is a good sign. And it's telling me that people are getting, uh, one, people are turning back on, businesses are turning back on, even if it's only partially, and we're seeing a little bit more rent come through as a result. Let's stay national in scope right now, John, and maybe that's a misleading Let's talk about, you know, CICRA and the, the sort of the federal support, but perhaps what you're also seeing on a provincial and municipal level of just how governments are trying to support real estate communities and the struggling tenants. Yeah, I mean, there's so many programs. And what we decided to do early on was track every program across the country. So we have created a database for federal provincial and municipal. So we're tracking over 130 municipalities across the country. And, you know, the interesting thing is because we did ask the tenants what they're thinking about these programs and whether or not they were helping. And, you know, the answer is yes, they are helping, but there's also a concern with them because there isn't, there hasn't been enough clarity. Secra is a good example. The clarity has becoming, you know, week by week since it was announced, there have been changes to the program. And because the programs at times are not clear, it causes a delay. So the landlords aren't sure how to react. The tenants aren't sure how to react. Although now we're getting to that point where everybody does understand the programs. They are having a positive impact. And that is the comment we're getting back from tenants. They think what the government is doing is reasonable and it is having an impact, but there still is going to be trauma coming out of this. 
it's not going to fix everything, but we're hoping that it lessens the impact and people are getting back sooner and faster as a result. You know, absorption of some of these programs has been an issue. There's a recent, I think it was Global Mail article about the different methods in the provinces being used to increase absorption. Ontario's gone the route of the stick, which of course is trying to ban evictions of commercial tenants, whereas Quebec has gone the carrot route of offering a reduced hit to the amount of the rent that the landlord has to eat. What do you see as the preferred method to increase absorption? And I guess as a related question, if it's not being absorbed at a rapid rate, is the program built well enough for the market? Yeah, I think the landlords have different views on this. At the end of the day, it needs to be a benefit to them as well as to the tenant. And if the rules are really hard to understand and it's difficult to implement, it's going to delay things. So I think we're at that point now where the, and it's just as of, I would say, last week, that the rules were fairly clearly laid out And the documents are also online. And now there's going to be a process of filling in documents. So if you look at it, you know, we have over 8,000 tenants across the country. That is a lot of documentation that you would have to fill out. And it's not simple. So I think the landlords are going to take advantage of it. And we're seeing now that some of the institutional landlords have committed to take advantage of the programs as well, because they have been equally hit, particularly on retail I think the clarity is shifting the mindset of the landlords, and we're going to see more activity over the next month or two. You know, John, this is a two-part question, I guess. One, can you go a little bit deeper and just talk about what the lack of clarity was and now how that clarity is coming forward and why there seems to be an increase in absorption? And then two, maybe this is a sensitive question, but if you could pick a preferred program or maybe there's one that a jurisdiction is doing that you kind of like the most, which would it be? Yeah, that's that. I'll start with the first part. You know, I think the delay is simply because the, I think the governments are scrambling just as much as the economy is scrambling. And they tried to put something together quickly. It had a lot of holes in it. So some examples were initially they had to have a mortgage. Well, a lot of the funds don't necessarily have a mortgage on the asset. So right away, they're excluded. But yet that is not how it ended up. The rules shifted. Another sensitive topic was for the tenants where they had to disclose their financial information back to the landlord. Well, that puts a lot of power back to the landlord and I think made a lot of tenants nervous about sharing their financials. Now, that was dealt with last week where all the tenants have to do is sign an attestation that they meet the requirements of the secret program and they're signing a, you know, a legal document that goes in with the package. So there are many aspects to it. And also, you know, who is going to fill out these documents? How much time do they have to fill out the documents? Can they do it partially? So if you had, if you met the requirements for one month, but not two, how does that work? Does that affect the entire three months that the program was in effect? All these things were unclear at the beginning. And week over week, a new announcement was made that allowed people to now assess it from a business perspective and say, this is the cost to me financially. Here's the benefit financially and make a decision based on that. You know, one aspect of all the government relief programs, I don't mean just those targeted towards real estate. I mean, the entire economy has been the question of who needs it. And we saw early on a lot of national tenants with very deep pockets looking for rent relief. And of course, I will not ask you to name any specific tenants given your position, but what's your thoughts on the application of who is getting rent relief and if it may for some of the larger tenants to look for it from landlords? Well, what was quite clear at the end of the day, and it's from the deferrals that have been granted, 
And we thought it would simply be highly weighted towards the small business. And what actually turned out was it was the businesses that were demonstrating they had a need. So it wasn't so much that it had to be a small business or medium-sized business. If they had demonstrated to the landlord that the need was real and they were open with the landlord, I think that discussion went quite well. And I think that is going to be true going forward. You know, if there is an ongoing dialogue and there's a negotiation between the two parties and they're both acting in good faith, you know, the landlords want the tenants to be in place. There's no question. They need to collect rent and having a vacancy isn't a good scenario, but it takes two parties. And right now, I think we're seeing a lot of those deeper negotiations take place because the programs are clear. You know, John, I think when people are listening to this, probably are watching us, I guess, I think, and just my brain goes immediately to retail, just thinking about the impact on retail. But of course, you know, other asset classes have experienced these challenges and other tenants and other asset classes. And maybe just talk specifically about office and industrial and, you know, kind of what you're seeing. And I, again, I know you can't specifically mention people, but maybe just categorize the types of different tenants that you're finding are the ones that kind of need it or, or are requesting the, the rent deferral. Yes, I, I don't think. Without getting too specific, again, it would come down to whether or not their business was struggling and if they were willing to disclose. So I would say on the industrial side, the reason, a good, a fair bit of the reason why they weren't impacted as much as office and certainly not as retail, there isn't that densification of people. So people could still work in these facilities with less concern. You know, there still is a distribution of goods taking place. And a lot of these are distribution, you know, many are distribution centers. So it just didn't have that same impact. The rents in industrial are simply not as high as office. So the cash flow is less coming out of those. And on the office side, I would say in general, there still was a very high degree of collection for rent. It wasn't that big of an impact initially. And again, because the businesses are generally still operating in some fashion. So the businesses are like, you're working from home, I'm working from home. Our businesses are still functioning and it's not completely closed, unlike retail. I guess related to the, to the rent relief question, and we are, of course, doing some crystal ball work here and we could all be very wrong, but it does feel, at least here in Ontario, that we are perhaps reaching a turning point with businesses starting to open up, which is great news. But the rent relief is likely not done. A lot of businesses are suffering and will continue to suffer. So how much longer do you think rent relief will be needed and how much longer can it be offered by landlords or the government? Yeah, I think what we're hearing, because we did ask the tenants on what they, how they think their tenant, their business is coming back. And it is a slow ramp up. That was quite clear from any of the tenants that we heard back from. And starting out at maybe a 15 to 20% of what it was a year ago. And by the end of August, they feel they'll be back up close to around 50%. And again, that's a general statement. And there are many nuances underneath that. But I do think that as they come back, they are paying their rent. And there are many deferrals in place. So the deferrals, the average deferral coming out is it's more than two months, closer to three. So that would be April, May, June. And I think it's probably too early to tell whether or not they're going to need further relief beyond that. And partly because we're not sure how far we will be open and to what extent the economy is going to come back. Some of the interesting information that was coming out of China was they had an immediate pop on the retail side. And they were calling it revenge shopping. So people were so eager to get out and get back shopping that they experienced a bit of a pop in sales. Not that they were expecting it to last, but there was that pop. You know, we do have a large enclosed mall in Richmond, B.C. 
It opened on May 19th, phase one opening. We now have 90% of the tenants operating back. There have only been three tenants who have closed out of, and I'm just going to pull a number out here. So out of 120 tenants, only three have actually closed their doors. They're quite small and the rest are operating. And so what we're seeing is the activity level is picked up and the traffic in the mall is at roughly 13,000 people per day. Pre-COVID, it was roughly 15,000. So the activity is picking up rapidly. And we're hoping we'll see that same kind of pattern elsewhere as the economy unfolds, that there will be that pop. But make no mistake, I mean, there is going to be a slow ramp up in terms of generating sales and getting the business back into a healthy environment. Before we move on, John, one last question on this topic. Do you, one, you mentioned for the originally were two and three month deferrals. Do you see or do you think that there's going to be an extension of those? Just given, you know, I, I know BC is a little bit further ahead, but Ontario still seems to be rather restricted as far as our quarantine goes. And did you suspect there'll be an increase or at least an extension? And then two, I'm just, you know, maybe just for our viewers' edification, what's the mechanism for recouping that? Are they just amortizing over the remaining of the term? Are they extending leases? Is a mismatch? What are you seeing most commonly? Yeah, so the I would say the average has been, and that could change rapidly if this prolongs, if the lockdown prolongs, the average is to the end of the year. So they're taking two to three months deferral and saying you need to pay that back by the end of the year. You know, some have extended it into a full 12 months, but I would think the, the average is more close to the end of the year with no penalty. So there's no interest on them. And I think another common flavor is whatever the term is to pay back the deferred rent, that if they go beyond that, there would be an interest rate applied to it. We're not seeing a lot of leases being renegotiated. I think that everybody is not sure what's going to happen. So they're in a state of almost being frozen. And we're seeing that in the leasing markets. There's not a lot of activity. The sublease market has picked up quite a bit on the office side, but we're going to start to see activity in the next two to three months. And we're not really sure at this point what that's going to look like. You mentioned the the China retail pop that they saw, and that is obviously a very encouraging trend and I would love to see it here. What other positive trends are you seeing coming to China that we could hope to reproduce here? And then also, is there any negative trends that we can see from the front runner of reopening their economy? Well, the thing that I found most interesting was that you could open up and you could do so safely. The virus is here. It's not going to go away. But if you're careful and rigorous about how you open up, They've opened up safely. And it's not so much that we always get great information out of China that I think at times we don't. But, you know, we're talking to our own people there and they have opened up and they've explained in detail how they've opened up and the type of monitoring they do on a personal level. Right down to every person has to have a QSR code on their phone indicating whether or not they've had COVID and they register as they go into a building whether it's retail, whether it's office, they have to register. So there's a rigor behind it and it's working. It doesn't mean it's gone, but it's working and the economy is moving. And I'm looking at the projections. I, I looked at a few today and you know, China's growth rate was projected to be at zero and that was an internal projections. Most of the other economies were looking at a negative projection over the next 12 months. And uh, it makes me wonder if that is a bit of why they're able to at least hold themselves steady is that they have that discipline and that rigor to open up safely. So I guess the other part of this, of course, is the government is ultimately the one decides how we reopen and businesses have to operate in those parameters. If you were 
in charge of reopening the Canadian economy, how fast would you do it and what areas would you pay the most attention to first to get the most benefit for our economy? You know, when we spoke to China, they gave us an example of two cities. So they had Beijing and Shanghai, and they each opened up as slightly differently. One was at roughly 50%, the other at 100%. And they said the impact was the same in terms of COVID. They didn't see any difference. So they went to the 100% rather quickly. My feeling is that the longer this takes a hold, I mean, the longer we're locked down, the more risk we face. And McKinsey did a great report saying that the impact on the economy based on the length of time is exponential. So there's an exponential impact on bankruptcies and defaults as time goes on. So my view is we do need to go back and we need to go back safely. And the fast, and we do need to do it quickly, but let's take care. And if we know there are high risk areas, so we know senior homes and retirement homes are a high risk, then take extra precaution. I'd be happy to pay a tax if we're taking extra precaution for the people who truly are at high risk, but we need to get moving. And my view would be to turn us on faster, but safely and understand what safe means. Yeah. And that, isn't there a challenge though, John, that I'm referencing a, an article called like the hammer and the dance. And I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you who wrote it because I, I forget the name of the author, but you know, there's that risk. You go back too early and then all of a sudden, you know, there's a spike and now we're all back in quarantine for an even longer period of time. And my instinct, and I based on nothing other than my gut, is that you go back two weeks early is way worse than going back two weeks later, right? Like then the, the right threshold. How do you kind of balance that in your own logic? Well, I think we're at a point now where we understand a fair bit about the virus. And we couldn't really say that as much three months ago. And they're quite clearly, you know, the various bodies or government bodies around the world are saying the physical distancing is your best tool. If you can stay physically distant, you're going to protect yourself and protect those around you. They know there are people who don't show symptoms and they're contagious. So I think there's enough information about the disease. And importantly, we have enough information that we can reasonably protect ourselves and be confident in that, that I think it is possible. We also have the supplies. We have the technology to be able to do so. I think it comes down more to the discipline of people than whether or not we can. And I kind of look at a place like China where they're used to a lot of government rules and government intervention in in the day-to-day lives. And I think they take to these rules quite naturally. And it maybe it's not as much of a burden, or at least they don't portray it that way. And yet I think for North America, it's a harder thing because we're not used to having rules on how we conduct ourselves day to day in this way. But I think if you feel safe, if you feel protected, if you believe that you're using caution and you're going to be okay, then why not go back? John, I've got an audience question here that relates to the discussion that we're having about the global impact, and I'll read it to you now. We often say real estate is local, despite national and global economic forces and trends which have impacts on it. Do you think COVID-19 is a bit of a paradigm shift to less local influence on commercial real estate? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought of it in that capacity. My first instinct was seeing some things that are making our individual economies more local. So people concerned about where things are coming from, concerned that they don't have access to the same supply chains that they did in the past because of all the restrictions going on in travel. It almost would make me think that we're going to shift to become a little bit more local than we were in the past. And so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that will be the case. I think we're going to protect our food supply a little bit more, protect our medical supplies a little bit more, which says to me that 
things will become a little bit more local. And if they are, why wouldn't real estate? Can I have some fun, John? And I'm sorry I'm going to do this to you. I smile because it's fun to put you on the spot. I'm sorry for whatever reason that we enjoy that. You avoided my last question about 15 minutes ago about the government intervention that you thought was the most appropriate. (laughs) So I'm going to call you out. I'm sorry for doing this, but what would you do? And maybe just pretend, maybe it's not something that exists, but how would you have rolled out support to our tenants, support to our landlords in the best fashion of your preferred fashion? Well, I liked the programs where it was just deferring costs for a period of time, you know, like deferring taxes, deferring utility payments, because these are big ticket items. And right away, that means you don't have a cash flow drain. And I think those were smart things to do right out the gate, giving some people the basic consumer, giving them cash in their pocket for those that need it. Again, very, very smart. I really liked those programs. And I'll tell you why. uh, One, it doesn't inject that cash into the economy when you need it the most. It put less strain on businesses for that first little while when it gave you some breathing room. And there were two reports that came out in May, one in Canada, one in the US, and they were not related, but they had the exact same information about their economies. And it was this, that bankruptcies had gone down year over year into the first two months of COVID. And they both, in both the US and Canada, and they were expecting the opposite. So to me, it says two things. One, that the programs actually had an impact. And two, that this was just a delaying effect. And both these economists believe that it was a delaying effect and that we are going to start to see some bankruptcies or an increase in bankruptcies towards the end of the summer. But again, I think being able to delay things gives you time to think, gives you time to adjust. And that could be a life-saving event. I'm not so sure the SECRA program is the best out there. I think it was really well-intentioned and I'm hoping it does have a really positive impact, but it's complicated and it's difficult. And that's causing a lot of angst for, I think, both parties. So thank you for that. And I, that was a really interesting answer. And I thought if I had to bring it back, I, let's move on. There's a soon to be released report that Adam had just recently referenced called, and I'll read it, called COVID-19 effect on tenants regulations, which we've, I think we've covered at length, costs, adaptation and permanent closures Can we maybe just segue into costs and just the cost that it's having and how your surveys and what you're seeing out of, you know, how that's being absorbed by the industry? So that was a common theme coming out of our tenant surveys, that their overhead costs are increasing. And depending on the type of tenant and the type of business, we're seeing anywhere from 10 to 40 percent, which is worrisome because that's a big number. Uh, So we're not sure. And I don't think the tenants are sure how they're going to deal with it. But when we did ask those questions, you know, what are their preferred methods? And, you know, initially the first reaction is cut costs, right? If you, if you have to increase costs in one area, you're going to cut somewhere else. So that could delay bringing back staff sooner. And that's one of the comments coming out. Another is that they're looking for alternative revenue streams or alternative channels. So for instance, you'll see a lot of restaurants that are delivering or have a pickup window or things like that, where, yes, you can't sit down here, but you can still get some element of service. So I think they're reacting rapidly, which is a good thing. And, you know, the other thing that came out of the surveys was that the tenants are rapidly adapting technology and it's forcing them to do so, which is a good, again, not a bad outcome, which I'm hoping will have a positive impact even pre or post COVID. You mentioned post-COVID, that time frame could be long or short. Do you see most businesses permanently integrating on a long-term basis, that stability to their existence, or is this just a, a Band-Aid for the bleeding that's going on now? 
You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. And I have been speaking to many people, our clients, tenants, peers in the industry. I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to that question. And what I do get a sense of is people are all trying to figure this out at the same time. And it's not easy because we don't have a crystal ball that's going to tell us exactly where we're going to be. So the first reaction, I think, from any business is you're going to try and protect yourself. You're going to try and prevent yourself from going down. And they've all been doing that. And I think doing it quite well. And now it's we're just starting to hear conversations about looking forward. But, you know, I would say I still think the horizon that people are looking at is maybe three to six months at most. And simply because they don't understand what it's going to look like going forward. You know, on the leasing side, we're not seeing people change a lot of their space yet. They're not wanting to invest capital, for instance, in offices. They'd rather staff just stay at home for a little bit longer, as opposed to put a capital and reconfigure an entire floor. And then, you know, six months time, maybe they don't need it. You know, that kind of uncertainty is causing people to be conservative and wait. But I honestly don't know yet what it's going to look like in six months time or more. To put a bit of a lighter note on adaptation of technology, there's a cool factor to it. And the one that really caught my eye recently was the idea of Paul LeGram's banks of elevator buttons. So you don't have to touch it anymore. So in terms of actual building mechanics that you're managing, do you see any cool technologies on the horizon that will make all their lives a little more uh, safe and healthy? Well, nothing that cool. (laughs) That's that's expensive. (laughs) You know, but I, I would say there are many things that people are testing out. So there is a nanotechnology that's being used. It's being tested in Canada. It hasn't been approved yet, but essentially you can put a material, it's like a paper-like material or a plastic-like material over any high-touch area. So you could put it over the buttons in an elevator, you could put it over a doorknob, any surface, and the virus will not adhere to the surface. So there is some that is approved in the U.S. We're looking at it now. We're trying to make sure that it actually can do what it says it can do. But that's probably the most interesting one because it was cost effective. I would look at that as the technology behind it is high tech, even though the material may not be itself. But honestly, that was probably the most interesting because it was clearly immediate and something we could do and do it in a cost effective manner. You know, Maybe I just I'm going to segue a little bit. One of the comments that one of the topics on your Collier's tenant report was possible permanent closures. You know, maybe just talk about what the survey resulted in. I mean, it's almost 10 percent of your the respondents saying they were contemplating it or working on it and maybe relate that to the impact that's going to have on rents. Yeah, it's a worrisome number. So in total, it was 8 percent. But on the retail side, it was a 10 percent. And really, the flavor of that question is that they're working. They have a plan meaning if they need to close, they're preparing to shut down permanently. Not that they have decided to do so, but you can tell that that's how serious things are. You know, they're not getting revenue come in, or even if they go back partially, they're still in dire straits. You know, I think, and I hope that, again, we get back sooner and do so safely so they can get that revenue moving, get the cash moving. And then also there's a portion of that which is just normal bankruptcy as well. You know, there's a lot of small businesses, they don't make it in a good environment. And we see them now, you know, like the three tenants we had out in in Vancouver in that mall, you know, they were not doing well pre-COVID. So COVID accelerated what looked like the inevitable, but not was specifically because of COVID. So the interesting part will be to what extent, what's that in-between ground? It could be more like a 7% of tenants that would have made it otherwise 
pre-COVID and may not make it now. We've got 15 minutes left or so, John. So we're going to transition into some audience questions, but I thought and we've been saving this for last. So we probably should have told everyone we were going to get to this topic because I, I think it's probably the most interesting for most of the viewers. So let's just talk about what you're seeing in the office market with regards to office space use and just how those tenants are behaving. And just, I mean, there's one of the numbers that kind of stuck out at me is just work from home productivity and maybe just kind of what you're hearing in the marketplace and just how you see us transitioning back to the world of getting in our cars or getting on a go train and going to the office? Well, there's no question that there's concern. And we've done our own internal surveys uh, with our staff across the board, and we're doing them regularly. Everybody's concerned to some extent to going back to work. I think the there's a bigger concern with public transit than there is with their own in the office environment. You know, like we've taken great care to make sure we have equipment, we have distancing, that we're controlling the number of people that would come in or could come into the office. So I think they're feeling somewhat comfortable about that because we have a plan, it's there, it's documented, they see it, they understand it, but it's getting to the office that is the bigger concern. So I would say that the things that were happening pre-COVID in terms of work from home are still going to be issues going forward. And there were a number of large companies pre-COVID that banned permanent work from home solutions, not partial, but permanent. And it was for two very specific reasons that one was productivity dropped and two, they could not maintain a culture. And those two issues will not go away post-COVID. And I don't know if there's technology that'll be better or processes or a combination thereof that it's simply going to help deal with that. But if we can't deal with that, if we don't deal with the productivity gap specifically, businesses are going to suffer financially and they're going to have to react to that. So I do think, again, people are going to go back. I think people want to go back. The surveys we've taken across North America for ourselves with our own staff clearly told us that people like the flexibility. They want to go back, but they like some flexibility. If they could stay home one day a week, you know, take care of normal things like deliveries being made to your home, you know, not having to spend time on the commute and things like that. It makes a better work-life balance. So I think we'll see a bit more of that, but I don't, I'll be surprised if a work from home, permanent work from home solution becomes common. And while we're on the topic of living with COVID-19, we've got uh, an audience question that is on that subject matter. The question is, what provisions were implemented for COVID physical distancing at malls? You know, we talked a bit about restaurants, obviously, they're getting a lot of the headlines right now in terms of suffering and solutions. But in the actual malls, for you know, outside of the scope of restaurants, what are landlords doing to ensure that people are being as safe as possible while still having the opportunity to spend a little money in their malls? Yeah, I mean, there are many things going on. I can go through a quick list of things. Curbside pickup is, I would say, common now. So you can go in, you can order online. Maybe you go into the mall, maybe you don't, but you can have somebody bring it to the curb, drop it off, and on you go. Another is definitely signage and markings on the floors to give people that idea of what the physical distance is and to adhere to it. Increasing security. And not to be like the police, but to remind people, you know, when you, if you're talking, if you're with your family, you're talking, you get distracted, maybe with your kids, you know, you may not be aware that you're not adhering to physical distancing. So the security is increasing more to remind people than to police it, you know, allowing tenants to encroach into common space. 
common area space, that is another thing where you're having to create lineups and monitor the number of people going into a store. Much like if you or I go into a grocery store, there's typically a few people in line waiting and it's being controlled. Well, that's taking place in the space of the landlord, the common area space. And the landlords are being very accommodating because they want this to work. So I think the big effort is the collaboration with the tenants and the landlord, you know, making sure that you hear their concerns, try and be rigorous about the approach, but everybody's trying to deal with it and not try and police it too hard and just keep working with people to find those solutions. And I think, you know, this particular mall we have out in BC, they've done, the team's done a spectacular job. I'm incredibly impressed at how open the mall is now. And we still have no cases of COVID. The staff have had none. We haven't heard of any within the mall. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we haven't heard of any. We think the tenants are and the consumers are being quite respectful. They're coming in with masks. You know, they're being asked to come in with masks. That seems to be happening consistently. And, you know, knock on wood, it's going well. John, this is kind of rapid fire. Here's another one for you. We got 10 minutes left. So I think we've got time for two or three more questions. This one's a long valuation. You know, and I think this is where everybody's struggling with this, particularly, you know, some of your, your landlord clients that have to mark to market, you know, their assets. And I know Collier's got a large appraisal sort of arm. How are you guys challenged with this right now? How are you managing it? And I mean, I guess, because we're supposed to be looking forward. Do you have any sense of when we're going to start getting a better idea of, you know, where values are going to land? You know, it really is a tough one because the markets are generally frozen. There's so little activity going on. I mean, all the funds have had to revalue their assets during this time. And they're not, I don't think they're making much changes because they don't know. There's no trading going on in the marketplace. So you have nothing to compare it to. But, you know, I would say in general, if the economy is declining, which it is, there will be an impact. And it's just a question of how big an impact that is. But I would say at this stage, you know, we're just not prepared to make predictions because there's just too many unknowns. And the duration of the lockdown is a big factor. Uh, John, I've got another question here from uh, one of the viewers, and it might be something right in everybody's mood on the, on the valuation front, is the idea that supply being disrupted, which you did allude to earlier, part of that solution would be you know, onshoring or reshoring a lot of industrial activity back in sea a light at the end of the tunnel there for increased industrial leasing, rents, valuations? Yes. I mean, that definitely is a concept. And, and we're, we've seen little pockets of it now with, you know, many local companies have shifted production. They're, you know, they're providing hand sanitizer. They're producing face guards, you know, and, and various types of products that are needed during COVID. You know, the question is, how far and wide does this go? What extent are the governments going to put in some restrictions? that force their economy to do certain things internally. And again, those are big unknowns. So I, it's a tough one. You know, I feel like I, I want to give you a better answer, but I, I don't think we know simply because the governments haven't reacted yet. You know, the anything that I think that's going on right now is more specific to COVID versus the go forward position in the economy. Okay, well, we'll hope it's true then. <laughs> John, I have another one that's more down your avenue, I guess. Yeah, this is something that kind of popped in my head when we were talking about it earlier. You know, you talked about your know, rent deferrals and the, you know, whatever the two or three month period, if or not longer, they've only got to the end of the year. It's going to take a while for tenants to get back into full octane business. Are they going to be able to generate the revenue to cover? I mean, let's say they took March, April, and May. That literally just gives them, or let's say they took April, May, and June. That gives them five months, six months to come up with the difference. And do you, how does that can impact you know tenants' viability in the in the medium term? It's a great question. 
you know, and I think that is probably the question on the landlord's mind as well. You know, are they going to be able to repay the rent? And again, I'm, I'm hoping that we do see a bit of a pop coming back. I am hoping that, you know, people are being creative about how they can generate revenue and control their costs to keep things moving in the right direction, even though it may not be a great outcome in the first year, like towards the end of the year, but at least keep afloat and keep things moving and, you know, keep the economy going in the right direction. I got to believe at the end of the day, the landlords are, again, going to be somewhat reasonable. If a tenant is demonstrating, you know, a true need and they believe this is a viable going concern, I suspect some of them are going to negotiate because they want to keep the space occupied. In some cases, it may not make sense. And it'll come down to, again, the landlord and the tenant really talking to each other and seeing if a solution is workable. But I have a lot of faith that if people do negotiate in good faith, they're going to come up with a positive conclusion. I think we've seen that the broader economy, the people for the most part do tend to come together in a crisis, which is always, you know, heartening for humanity as a total. The next question is, if we go to the Collier's Real Estate Management Services website, there's a long list of services that your group can provide. Are you going to be adding new to that list directly as a result of COVID-19 in terms of your service offerings? You know, we actually looked at that. And at this point in time, I would say no. But what we are doing is... I would say, getting better at what we do. And what I mean by that is, ironically, pre-COVID, my group, the REMS group, we've never done a research report for the market. And now we're doing them monthly. And we're seeing a lot of positive reactions coming from landlords and tenants about them. So we are going to continue. And I think if we can be a bridge between, uh, somewhat of a bridge between the landlords and tenants and help make those relationships work, then we've done our job well. So I do want to get better at what we do. That I would say we want to be adding value. So I think the adding value will be in the context of the services we provide. I would say that, you know, the things that were important before are going to continue to be important now, like sustainability. That has not been much of a topic of conversation, but it will ramp back up quickly. We are focused on providing that service as part of our package, and that will become more prevalent as time goes on. John, two minutes. So this is the last question, I think. And I think this is curious. There's a really interesting line of thought. You know, we know that immigration is changing in our country as a result of the sort of the lockdown and borders being closed. And I think it's everybody can appreciate the impact it's going to have on the multifamily space. What impact do you think it's going to have on the other asset classes? Sorry, I, I, I didn't catch the first yeah, sorry. Immigration. Yeah. How is our, you know, I mean, I think it's 350,000 people per year and we're going to not, I don't even know what the number is, but we're not clearly not going to get that number of inbound people. How does that impact other than multifamily? Because I think that's an easy answer. I'm making it challenging for you. <laughs> well, you know, if the population isn't growing, it's very tough to grow the economy unless you're going to be exporting. So, and we are an export economy, but Again, I think we're talking about just a blip in time, right? This is a crisis. It will pass and things will go back into a new normal and will be better in some regards. And that's proven time and time again throughout history. So I think this will pass. And this is just a moment in time. And I believe that, you know, even with immigration, even though there's a pause, Canada is still an attractive place. You look around the world and, you know, even unfortunately, I look down at the U.S. and what's happening there. And we don't have that same kind of thing going on here generally. We don't have war. We don't have famine. We're not under threat in a very specific way by other countries. And that makes this an attractive place to be. And I think that will no doubt continue. And the other thing is we have space. 
we have, we have a lot of space. And I hear that from, you know, the foreign clients that I have. They just love how big this country is and how wide open we are in terms of space. So uh, I don't think that's going to change anything at all. John, I always like to end on a high note, and that's a great view of what a fantastic position we are here in Canada. We are out of time, and I want to thank you for speaking today and for the audience for providing such excellent questions we could end off on here. And George, I invite you to come back to the virtual podium. Thank you. Hi, Aaron, Adam, and John, thank you so much for everything that you uh, did here with this session. We sincerely appreciate it having all of you with us, providing a most insightful conversation on some of the impacts of COVID-19 on the Canadian real estate market at this time, along with your thoughts on how to prepare for what lies ahead. As a reminder to all of you, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, a short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on this event. Next week on Wednesday at 3.30 p.m., we will continue our thought leadership webinar series with our guest at that time being Paul Thinkbinder. Uh, Paul is uh, Global Head of Real Estate at Great West Life Co. and responsible for a $27 billion portfolio on several continents. Don't miss this most insightful conversation with another industry veteran. So on behalf of the Canadian Real Estate Forum's team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.